This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Susan Swain. Our guest is Kelly Dittmar, Director of Research at the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers University. Kelly, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. This year, the election 2020, the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, the obvious headline is Kamala Harris as VP-elect. But how would you write the second graph on the news story? I think we would say that women also started to close the partisan gap in representation uh, as we look down to the congressional level. And while we're still counting numbers, we're looking to see also if that might happen down at the state legislative level. So it's a better year this year for Republican women than we've seen any time before. Before we talk about the candidates, a few words about 2020 voters. Just saw a story in the Washington Post that this week, uh, or this year rather, the turnout will surpass 65% of eligible voters, the highest in almost a century. What's your reaction to hearing those numbers? Well, I think it's always a good sign. You know, when we look at a democratic system like ours, what makes a democracy is participation. And so, you know, as somebody who teaches young people um, and also encourages the participation, particularly women's participation in politics, it's a, a good sign that we are seeing high levels of engagement. Of course, I think the the other side to that is it's coming from a period of, of crisis and that I think folks are really paying close attention in part because their everyday lives they are seeing are very much affected by who's in leadership. So you hope that beyond this crisis period, that level of engagement and participation continues across groups. At this point, most of the data that's available about who voted comes from exit polling. It tells us that the gender gap didn't grow very much beyond 2016 and years past, and in fact, has been relatively steady since 1980. Again, a Washington Post story on this says that one pattern continues to be clear year after year, that party is a stronger force in politics than gender. If that's true, that seems to me actually to be a good news, that people are looking at candidates based on what they bring to the office, not what sex they are. Yeah, I think that's right, though there is a gender part of the partisan story. (laughs) So um, certainly we know, and, and those of us who work in this field have been pushing back against claims that women vote for women, for example. And that was really clear in the 2008 election. So if you go back and recall the nomination of Sarah Palin, some of the rationale behind that was, oh, well, we can pool some women voters because we put a woman on the ticket. Those of us who work in this field and those who observe politics knew that that was not the case because women don't just vote for somebody along lines of gender. That, again, party is this the strongest motivating factor. And and we that bore out to be true, of course, in the election. And that was true even this year. Um, we Where gender affinity might matter is engagement and enthusiasm, and I think we saw that this year with Kamala Harris. But going back to the gender gap, I do think it's important to note that while it is not, um, while party is more important in vote choice, women have consistently uh, aligned more with the Democratic Party in every election since 1980. And there are substantive reasons behind that, which are perceptions about the role of government, women's engagement with government, um, and differences in, in policy positions with the Republican Party. And that's something that both benefits Democrats, and therefore they need to recognize that in terms of women being their base, and on the Republican side, grapple with that and figure out if there is a way that they can better attract women voters uh, to their agenda and to their party. 
while we're talking about statistics and their availability, for someone who spends their life in research as you do, political research, what's your reaction to yet another cycle with pre-election polling data and divergent results? And what's the future for political polling? Yeah, I mean, I've been joking a little bit to say the the, the future question is a bit above my pay grade. Um, but, I, but I certainly think that um, it raises, again, questions of trust um, of those pre-election polls and also concerns about and really research questions about where is the bias coming from. And I think there are all sorts of opinion, opinions here, whether it's about methodology. So all of these polls are, you know, conducted in different ways, whether they be online or via phones. And we have concerns about cell phones and landlines, right, changing technology and realities in this. There's also questions about bias and response. Um, so if we have re, re, uh, declining trust among Republican-leaning voters, um, then if they are not participating in these polls, any waiting you do doesn't matter because you can't wait against nothing. Um, you know, right, if, you have, if those folks are just not represented at all, um, that's a problem. So uh, you know, all of this is to say I do think we have to continue to look into the problem, not necessarily just throw polls out altogether, because polls also play a useful role in looking at trends and perceptions on policy opinions. This is important for our legislators and our leaders to see where the country is at on issues. When it comes to horse race, however, who's going to win or lose a race and by how many points, I do think that's where we have to be really cautious about putting too much stake in polling. So turning to the women 2020 candidates, as we do that, you literally wrote the book on this topic, excuse me, called A Seat at the Table. So talk in general terms about why gender representation is an important goal. Yeah, so... You know, we get asked this at the Center for American Women in Politics all the time um, and, and asked, you know, are you simply discounting beans, right? Do you just want women in Congress or women in representation for demographic uh, equity? And that is part of the story. But we know behind that descriptive representation, if you will, the numbers of women and more specifically women of different racial and ethnic groups, you can break it down further by age, et cetera, that they bring distinct life experiences and therefore perspectives and expertise to the job. And I I compare it back to um, Hillary Clinton had a line that she would say on the campaign trail in 2016 where she said, you know, I'm not asking you to vote for me um, because I'm a woman. I'm asking you to vote for me on the merits. But one of those merits is that I'm a woman. And I think that's the piece that sometimes we miss when we think about representation. When we look at veterans, for example, we say, well, their distinct expertise is because they served in the military. Well, there is a distinct expertise that comes with living your life and navigating our institutions in the United States as a black woman or as a South Asian woman or as a woman even more generally. And so that's the piece to me that's very important to have those voices and perspectives at policymaking tables that are going where policies are going to be made uh, that serve women who are over 50 percent of the population. So let's turn to the United States Senate. Going into the election, there were 26 female senators for women of color. What was the status afterwards? Yeah, so this is a a story that's a mixed story because of the ascendancy of Kamala Harris 
to the vice presidency. So as of today, we have 24 women that will serve in the next U.S. Senate. Uh, that number could go up by one because of the Georgia special election with Kelly Loeffler. Um, but we won't match our current number, which is 26, unless uh, Governor Gavin Newsom, in the meantime, appoints a woman to Kamala Harris's seat. And Republicans sent a non-incumbent woman to the Senate in Wyoming, Cynthia Lummis. That was a first for Wyoming. Yeah, it's the first time that Wyoming has sent a woman to the Senate. And Cynthia Lummis, of course, comes with her own experience serving in the House. How many states have not yet had a woman senator? So 17 states still have not elected a woman to the U.S. Senate. And is there, can you ascribe reasons to that as in, in the work that you do? Um, there's not a clear geographic reason for the disparities um, other than to note that there are states where we've had uh, trends in terms of women's representation. So if you have more women you know, serving in the House, serving in state legislatures, that certainly can be a pathway to higher levels of office, including the U.S. Senate. Um, but there are states where we have had women, for example, you know, more women in the U.S. Senate um, than we may have had over time in the U.S. House. So it's not necessarily something that we can predict going forward or explain in terms of those gaps. Coming into Election Day, there were 101 women in the 116th Congress in the U.S. House of Representatives. How's it turned out? So we just had two race calls, so we are up to 116 women who will serve in the U.S. House in the next Congress, and that number could go up. We have a number of women still in races too close to call. Uh, Again, you know, as you noted, um, we have 101 women currently serving in the House, so we will increase, you know, see a net increase of at least 15 women. And how many freshmen? Of uh, non-incumbent women, we will have in the next House. Um, So in the next House, we will have at least 25 freshman women, um, and that includes seven women of color. Are you able to talk a little bit about those new members and uh, who they are, what they look like? Yeah, I think one of the biggest stories here is the party break. Um, So Republicans of the 25 new women already uh, elected, we have nine Democratic women and 16 Republican women. If you go back to 2018, team. Um, the story that year in terms of women's increases in Congress were entirely or almost entirely on the Democratic side. So the freshman class was a record freshman class in which we only had one um, Republican woman. And so that was out of 36 freshman women that were going into the 116th Congress. That partisan break has obviously shifted this year so that there are more Republican women in this class. And then when you look at who they are, um, there are, again, more women of color, as I noted, both Republican and Democratic women of color, which is also notable because uh, historically, the, the greatest number of Republican women of color that we had surveying simultaneously, simultaneously was only two. So we will see an increase, though small, um, but in that racial and ethnic diversity among the Republican women serving in the next House. And then I think ideal, ideologically beyond party, even among, for example, these new Republican women, um, there is some diversity in sort of at least how they've gotten to um 
Congress and also uh, their alignment, for example, with Donald Trump. While all of them have, you know, been endorsed and, and had the support of the president and vice versa supported him, some are have positioned themselves much more as outsiders, somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren, uh, in Georgia and Lauren Boeber in Colorado, whereas then you have other women like Stephanie Bice or Nancy Mace who, again, position themselves ideologically maybe similarly, but also our state legislators have really been working through their parties, um, less so as outsiders in the sense of a Donald Trump um, or these other women candidates. So there's, there's diversity there in background. And then on the Democratic side, um, we have women like Nikema Williams, who will take John Lewis's seat, uh, Cori Bush, who's the first uh, woman of color um, to be elected from um, Missouri, we have uh, Marilyn Strickland, who is um, a biracial woman, both black and Korean American, who will represent Washington and again be the first uh, black woman to be sent to, to Congress from Washington. So these women are also breaking additional barriers along the way. That 2018 result that you mentioned, in which a lone Republican freshman woman joined the House, was clearly a wake-up call for the GOP. After that, what sort of resources did the party and its support organizations put into play to recruit women candidates? So I want to give credit here to, of course, Elise Stefanik, a member of Congress from New York, who after the 2018 election in which she served as the recruitment chair for the NRCC, really uh, problematized the underrepresentation of women in the Republican Party and she and others refer to it as a crisis in the Republican Party. And that was really important in simply defining and shedding a spotlight on the problem itself. Um, and as you know, they went down to just 13 Republican women in the House out of 435 members. So it really was a crisis of representation and a real decline because they went from 23 to 13. After that, she established her own organization, Leadership PAC, called EPAC, that would support Republican women. Uh, Winning for Women, another organization that had been around in 2018, was also amping up their efforts. View PAC, again, another organization that had been there but continues to do important work to support Republican women. They were coming together, even though they weren't entirely new, but coming together around this problem definition to pressure both the party and and make a call um, for both uh, folks who would support women candidates and also women candidates themselves to run. Uh, and I think that set the groundwork for the women who did run at record levels this year on the Republican side and then ultimately won nominations at record levels. The one thing we don't know is how specific the recruitment was from the party itself. Um, so I don't know yet until we talk more to these women um, and if they share, you know, if they were recruited directly by the party or directly by these organizations or that it was the fact that at least these organizations were there that may have influenced them and made them think, OK, this is a friendlier environment in which I should run or they need me. Right. <laughs> they need me at this level. And so, you know, what, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring. It's amazing, but there are still four states that have never sent a woman to the United States House of Representatives, and they are quite literally all over the map, Alaska, Mississippi, North Dakota, and Vermont. What are the impediments to women running for federal office, and do they differ from male candidates? I think the the impediments are not that different across levels of office for women. Uh, Of course, they're heightened at levels in which, you know, it's more competitive, it's more costly, 
Um, but one of the first barriers is, is one of expectations or evaluations um, in which we still know that voters are more likely to assume expertise and qualifications of men than they are for women. And so what that means is when women do run for office, uh, they often have to spend more time making the case and proving to both voters and party leaders, um, those who might be doing recruitment at the earliest stages, those who might give money, um, that they are qualified and that they can win. Um, and so there, there is that sort of evaluation bias and those stereotypes that the expectations of leaders and office holders are still more aligned with men and masculinity. That's changing, uh, but it's certainly something women confront. We see that women, you know, talk about fundraising as being uh, harder for them, and especially women of color note this. And the, the literature is mixed there. Empirically, we see that they overcome that hurdle, but it doesn't mean it's not harder to raise the same amount of money as their male counterparts. And there are certainly questions about whether or not they need more money, because, again, if they have to prove the case um, more than their male counterparts, that might require more uh, money. So money, stereotypes, um, and then I think as we were talking about the partisan differences, um, as you get to that higher level office, it's even more important that you have networks of support, um, that you have folks that can help to get you from making the decision to run through election day. Um, and those support infrastructures are not equal on the Democratic and Republican side. There are many more organizations doing targeted recruitment of women on the Democratic side and then supporting them. There are also, uh, particularly with Emily's list, there's a lot more money uh, specified for women only um, on the Democratic side. And so that leads to even uneven playing fields among women by party. Do women candidates or potential candidates tell you that they are also concerned about family challenges? Or has that evened out between male and female candidates? I think that that has um, changed a little bit over time, as you can see for the women who ran in 2018 and, and ran again this year, you do at least anecdotally, and this is a hard data point, we try to gather, but we don't have hard data, but you see anecdotally that there are more women with younger children running, and not even just running with those kids, but also leveraging their experience as mothers of school-aged children. Um, to talk about the benefit of their perspective in policymaking. Uh, somebody like Katie Porter from California not only talked about that when she was running in 2018, but has been active in Congress now as a representative, uh, talking about the importance of having a woman like her, a single mom of young kids, um, to talk about and inform policy from that perspective. We have a caucus, a mom's caucus, that has grown in size um, in the last couple of years, again, because of that. So this is not to say that women's decision-making isn't more relationally embedded. That's what my colleagues at COP found in their, their study in 2008, um, Basically, that women are more likely to consider, you know, their kids, their husbands, the relationships in their lives when they make the decision to run for office than are men who are more likely to say, I want to run for office. And so I'll run for office. Um, so I think that is still true. But when they do that calculus, I, I hope, I'm hopeful that that's starting to change and they're seeing that the benefits 
of their perspective might outweigh the challenges and costs of also having to grapple with being um, a primary caregiver or trying to balance that better with their partners. I'm talking with Kelly Dittmar, who's the Director of Research at the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers University on Election 2020 and Women. COVID will make this a year for the history books for forever, really. And what ways did you see the campaigns making up for all the in-person aspects of seeking public office? Yeah, I mean, right away you saw campaigns um, really try to leverage their space and their voice, candidates more specifically, uh, to help voters and to help constituents in their districts um, get information about COVID. So one thing we saw is that candidates would change their websites to add a sort of resource list uh, for how folks could navigate uh, the pandemic, whether it be health or economically related issues, how they could figure out what government support they could get. But then, of course, in terms of actual strategy and how to just communicate uh, their message to voters, I think they had to leverage some of the tools that they were already going to use, but rely on them even more heavily. So they were going to have to use more online advertising. Um, They, like the rest of us, got really in tune with how to do Zoom meetings um, and could do some of their events that way. Um, And and continued to do things like phone calls in ways that would replace the door-to-door knocking that you would do in terms of canvassing voters. So, you know, it seems that they were doing much of the same stuff, but they had to figure out the different space spaces in which they could do that safely. And of course, there were some differences where where some candidates were more comfortable doing, you know, socially distanced events eventually. Um, But I think for the most part, they they recognized the need to move things mostly online uh, and via phone. So let's move to state level, starting with executives. People may not know who are listening that the United States currently has nine sitting female governors, but none of them were up for a reelection this year. Your website tells us that at least 93 women will serve in statewide elective executive offices, including those nine governors, in 2021. What's below that headline? Yeah, I mean, I think this is just a reminder. One of below that headline would be, and the representation of women of color continues to be small. Um, so, one of the areas where we've had the the least representation for women of color has been at the statewide executive level, and that's not going to change drastically after this year. Um, so, we currently have. 16 women of color in these offices. We're going to go up to 17. As you noted, of the nine women, we have nine women governors. That includes the first ever Democratic uh, woman of color, and she is only the third woman of color to serve as governor. So this has been a place where um, I think we need to do more effort in terms of recruitment and support for women of color across party lines to be represented. And there's really not a big uptick, according to your data, 28 percent in 2020 of women in executive statewide positions and about 30 coming out of the election. Mm -hmm. So is that a recruitment issue? Um, Well, I think this year it's the the increase. We just have to be careful to note there are just far fewer statewide executive races this year. So um, 2018 was a year in which most states held their statewide executive uh, contests. So this year we wouldn't have expected a huge change. But the overall number that you're noting is is certainly one that hasn't increased in any 
soft, <laughs> soft way uh, over the past few election cycles in ways that would get us, you know, really quickly close to parity. So is it a recruitment issue? Yes, and, right? So all of this is partly on recruitment. We need more women to run. They need to be a larger proportion of the candidate pools, and that's from the congressional level down, um, including these offices. But it's also a support um, uh, issue. In other words, once women make that decision to run, they need to be backed. And if they are running, we need to think about strategic recruitment. So making sure that when they're running, they're running in the most winnable races as well. And parties play a role in that. Outside organizations play a role in that in making sure that we can not only get women to run, but have them win in winnable races and provide them the resources and support they need in order to be successful through the general election. So turning finally to state legislatures, boy, that's a big job gathering all that data. And I know, I know we're only uh, really a, a short time out from the election. But going into the election, your website reported a record number of women as state legislative nominees. So what do you mm-hmm. know at this point about what happened in election year? Yeah, so we're, we've got about 400 races with women uh, still too close to call. So it is hard for us to give a sense of where we're going to be at. Um, But we're a bit over 100 away from uh, the record. In other words, the current level of women's state legislative representation. But you can do the quick math there. That means if about a quarter of the outstanding races women win in, then we could again see a record level. But um, we won't know until a lot of these races are determined where exactly we are in terms of history. Historically, Um, I will say one thing. I think the trend that we saw in nominations for women at the state legislative level uh, was parallel to what we saw at the congressional level in that there was a a closing of that partisan gap. Um, So we saw more Republican women nominees uh, proportionally uh, than we had seen, for example, in 2018. Um, Still, Democratic women, of course, are the majority of women overall, but that there had been some closing uh, of those partisan differences. And and I expect that we will see that ultimately in the final results at the state legislative level as well. Um, So the women who will serve in the next uh, sessions of our state legislatures nationwide, I I presume we will see them be slightly more um, Republican than they were as we went into this election. But but we're, we're still crunching those numbers and hope that these results come in uh, a little more quickly in the coming days. Earlier in our conversation, you referenced talking to some of the women who had been successful. So what does the Center for American Women in Politics do to add real context to the numbers that you gather? Do you interview many of the successful candidates and what happens to that information? Yeah, um, we don't always do that. I mean, we, we tend to be in contact in, in a less formal way, often with candidates and office holders, to reach out to them at the beginning of, of cycles to get information for them. For example, we ask for self-identification for their race and ethnicity. So it's a way for us to connect with them and let them know that we're a resource because women who run for office are often asked about women who run for office. And so we often just want to make sure that they know we're there. Once they're office holders, we do send out more uh, uh, formal communications just to let them know of the resource. And, and that often leads to connections. We also work with women elected organizations um, 
that uh, where we can go and, and meet with um, groups of women elected officials, again, share our resources, but also talk to them about their experiences so that it can inform our work. Um, our research projects are where we really do those more in-depth interviews and connections with women legislators or candidates or elected officials. And so most recently you referred to our book um, on women in the 114th Congress. So we were fortunate to interview over 80 of the women who served in that Congress. And so that was part of a, a larger research project where we wanted to look at representation beyond just the numbers and give context to why it matters. So we did those interviews. Um, we also in the past have interviewed women state legislators for similar reasons, also asking them about um, why they ran for office and their past to office. So all of that really helps to inform uh, both put context to the numbers, but also inform uh, the programs we do, because we do run programs, including a national network of program called Ready to Run, where we're in over 20 states doing a program that is for campaign training for women. And so the more we can talk to women who do run and who serve, the more we can um, support women who are thinking about candidacy. You, on that end, you referenced earlier teaching. And I'm wondering when you have a young women in class and you talk to them about serving in public office, what is the attitude among college women? Is they Do they see life in public office as something they aspire to or have different reactions? I, I think it's a mix, but I do think over the last few years, probably more than a few years at this point, um, there is some aversion to running for office among not only young people, but others, um, including women, um, because they are not sure that politics is the place, particularly elected office, is the place to get things done. They look at Congress, they look at the polarization, and they wonder whether or not they could be more effective in advocacy and activism. And I have to say that's pretty consistent with what we've seen from women overall across age groups historically. Um, and this has been an additional challenge to getting women to run in the first place. Women who have been excluded from the system. And again, let's talk more specifically about women of color who've been excluded from formal institutions of government have found other ways to make an impact. And they've been quite successful in movement politics and activism and advocacy. And so now we're asking them, no, 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 we want you to be in the system that has formerly excluded you and is in, in which you're still underrepresented. Uh, um, and so we have to make a stronger case to them. So I try to make that case to young women, especially in my classes, you know, through the research we've done on women in office to say, look at the things that women have done and the difference they've made and think about what, how things would be different were they not there. And so we need your voices just as much on the outside as we do on the inside. And I think if we can make that case, and we are making that case to women, that's what, you know, partly uh, speaks to the increase of women's candidacies. Um, but the more we can do that, the more women will become a, a more equal part of the candidate pool. So, uh, Kelly Dittmar, my last question for you is back at the top of the ticket. For someone whose professional life has been dedicated to the study of women in politics, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about the fact that if Nancy Pelosi is reelected Speaker of the House and the Biden-Harris team is sworn in on January 20th, that women will be second and third in line for the U.S. presidency on this 100th anniversary of women's right to vote. 
Yeah, after a, a pretty tough year for in so many ways, right? Um, you know, a pandemic, a recession, and then a really uh, tough political election overall, right? Pretty contentious. I think it's really rewarding and, and relieving to uh, a relief to look at the progress for women's political leadership. And I think regardless of what party you might align with, recognizing this historic moment, particularly um, for Kamala Harris's ascension to the vice presidency. And what that means, um, both symbolically and substantively, is something that I hope everybody sort of steps back and can take a deep breath and, and look at that in historical context and the importance of this moment and what it means not only for our generation, uh, but for the generations that will come after to be able to see themselves and here I'm talking about women, I'm talking about black women, I'm talking about South Asian women, be able to see themselves at that highest level of leadership and know that somebody who shares some of their life experience will be in these most important conversations um, in our politics. And I don't want to discount that. And I think amidst all the chaos of this election, one thing that's been a little frustrating is I think it's easy to overlook that fact. Um, but I think it's important that we all celebrate that. And certainly those of us who've been doing this work for a long time are, are celebrating it and, and are saying, OK, this is this is a really important milestone and, and it can motivate us to continue this work to be sure that it, we see those numbers of women and the leadership of women continue across levels of office. Kelly Dittmar. Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers University. Thanks for giving us your time. Thank you.